0: Well, I want to begin is having us to look back. We're continuing in the gospel of John, and we're headed to the cross. Imagine if you would, journey back in time, I want us to feel, to go back again, 2,000 years ago, the city. Again, is bustling with the air, expectation and excitement for it's time. It's time for the Passover, one of the most significant festivals in Jewish calendar. People, people from all concerns of Judea and beyond have made their pilgrimage. To the ancient and holy city, swelling its population. People are everywhere. The Jewish leaders are committed to killing the Lord Jesus. So stay with me. Imagine as you walk through the narrow, stone paved streets of Jerusalem. You're surrounded by a cacophony of sounds, the bleating of the sheep, the voices of the merchants selling their wares, and the hum of countless conversations in different languages. The air carries the aroma of bread and incense, fresh bread. You can smell the roasted meats and the earthly incense, or the earthly scents of olive oil. The city itself is a tapestry of old and new. The grandeur of the second temple dominates the skyline. It's white marble and gold glittering in the sunlight, a symbol of both spiritual aspiration and a troubled history. The temple's courts are filled with worshipers and those offering sacrifices, a mosaic of devotion and ritual. And amidst this backdrop, there's a sense of anticipation that permeates the crowd. The name of the Lord Jesus of Nazareth is on everyone's lips just days before. He entered the city to high praise of the masses. They hailed him as king. His recent miracles, especially the rising of Lazarus, having rippled through the community, stirring up mixed hope and skepticism and fear among the populace and the religious elites, It is in this charged atmosphere that we find ourselves in John chapter 12, beginning at verse 20. There are there some Greeks, representative of the wider world beyond Judaism, wanting to get a glance at Jesus. This moment signifies a turning point, a signal that the message and the impact of the Lord Jesus reached beyond the Jewish people and was now becoming a global mission. Now that the stage is set, let us go deeper that we might explore this passage from John chapter 12. Follow along with me. John chapter 12, we're going to begin at verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked them, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. For if it dies, it bears much fruit. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, Father, we thank you for your eternal word. Your word that is effective. Your word that you have given to us so that we might truly indeed be your disciples. That we might know how to be followers of Christ. Help us Father God, to understand what your word says and what it means that we might apply your word as we leave this building. Help us to be obedient to your word, to carry out your word through acts of obedience and from a love for you. Help us to honor you. Lord God, We pray that your word will go forth and carry its power, that we might remember who you are, and that we might worship you and serve you for who you are. May you be the object of our faith, and may we turn from our sins and turn to you, the author and finisher of our faith. Help us now. Teach us, O God, by the power of your Spirit. We pray also for the one who do not know you, that today might be the day of salvation. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So I've entitled today's sermon, uh, sermon, uh, Discipleship at a Glance, considering... I thought it was interesting that um, these themes uh, bleeds out of the text at this particular time as we begin a new year. And here it is, we're reminded, I believe, about this idea of discipleship. And The Lord is reminding his disciples what they ought to be because he is about to leave them. And he must leave them. He must leave them so that the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, might come and might remind them of all of the things that he have said, all of the things that he have taught them, that they might remember and that they might obey him. And so he's laying a foundation here. And so we're going to consider... Point number one, the glorified Christ, who ultimately is the object of what of the reason why we do what we do. It's because of Christ. Point number two is the called out ones, and point number three, the truly committed. So after the triumphal entry of Christ. The Lord's earthly ministry is coming to a close, and Passion Week has started. Verse 20 says, Now among them, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Who are the Greeks? The Greeks here are in reference to Gentiles. It does not necessarily mean they are from Greece These people are also known as God-fearers, known to be devout. In other words, non-Jews who came to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. They probably were not a part of the dispersion. They more than likely were proselytes who participated by worshiping in the synagogue. And for those who may not know or remember, a proselyte is a person converted, in this case, to Judaism, but did not go through the process of circumcision. This word, in many cases, was used to determine the difference between a Jew by birth and one who were a non-Jewish person who was converted to Judaism. So though the Jews were plotting to kill Jesus, the Gentiles who were devout religious people began to want to see more and more. What they had heard about this one who is called Jesus of Nazareth, the one who has caused. Bread and fish to multiply in a desert. The one who caused the dead man to rise up again with with life in his body after four days. His fame is rising. As you can see, it's starting to grow beyond Jerusalem and it's entering outer regions. And people are wondering. We know this because in verse 21, they wanted to see him. Look at verse 21. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Notice they went to Philip seeking an opportunity to see Jesus. They they may have gone to Philip because they were familiar with his name. Though though Philip was a Jew and no different from the other apostles, his name is Greek and he is from Bethsaida, a fishing town in Galilee. Many Gentiles were in that region, so with that background, it makes sense why the Greeks would approach Philip. They obviously were not worshipers of pagan deity because then we see in verse 22, it says, Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. You see, Andrew was also from that region, Bethsaida. That was his hometown as well. And they were the only two from the 12 with Greek names. These men took, took the matter about the Greeks and wanting to see Jesus. They took it to the Lord. And here's how the Lord responded in verse 23. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, in comparison to what the Lord previously stated about his time not yet coming, this is a first. Because you remember in John chapter 2, verse 4, the Lord said to his mother Mary, Woman, what does this have to do with me? Remember, they were running out of wine. They were, they were at a wedding, and his mother came to him and told him the problem. said, like, it's not my time yet. What does this have to do with me? Right? So again, he was mentioning this idea of time being not yet. Then in John chapter 7, verses 6 and and 8, he responds to his brother. Remember, his brothers were, were saying to him, if you are who you say you are, reveal yourself. Why don't you go to the towns and let people know who you are? And what did he say to them? He said to his brothers, my time has not yet come, but your time is always. And then he says, you go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast for my time has not yet fully come. Now, let's again consider what time is it in verse 23, something changed. Look at the verse again. The Lord states this time, what? The hour has come. For the Son of Man to be glorified. In other words, it is here. His hour has come. His time has come. And it is now. This shows that the Lord is waiting or was waiting for a particular time span that is given to him by the Father. Everything happened according to the Father's will. Remember, he often said, I only do what my Father tells me to do. We speak. I have communion with my Father. I can only do what my Father reveals to me. He was always speaking about his obedience and his love for the Father. Everything happened in the providence of God. This we know because we also understand that the providence of God is at work in our own lives. Right? We understand that God is at work in our own lives. We know that everything is ultimately out of our hands and ultimately in God's. Hands. Jesus rested in the reality that he knew that the father had his best interest in mind. He never doubted the father's plan for his life. He agreed with the father. He embraced the father's will. Therefore, he humbled himself. We can see the humiliation of Christ. Philippians 2 and 8 states this about Christ's humiliation. In Ephesians 2 verse 8 through 10 it says, And being found in human form, he, Christ, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, Even death on a cross, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Here we see the humiliation of Christ. We can follow after Christ and also be humble. Because if the king can humble himself to the Father's will, how much more should we as disciples of Christ humble ourselves to the work of God and to the service of Christ? It's because of love. Love is in picture here. It's not about following rules and and regulation, but it's being carried away with love. Love causes us to be obedient to the word of God. We're moved because of what Christ have done and that he went to a cross on our behalf and paid for our sins fully. And here we are, the redeemed of God. So it is because of love for the Father and the love Christ received from the Father throughout all eternity. He obeyed until his mission on earth to save sinners was complete. Christ is the mediator between man and God and in our 1689 London Baptist Confession, it states in paragraph one, it pleased God. In his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus Christ his only begotten son according to the covenant made between them both to be the mediator between God and man the prophet the priest and king head and savior of the church the heir of all things and judge of the world unto whom he did for from all eternity give a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed called justified sanctified and glorified being the redeem of god we too will be glorified with christ we too will share in the glorification we are being sanctified right now but one day we will be all that Christ will make us to be and we will be glorified carrying along glorified bodies, putting off sin and the flesh forever and being perfect, being able to do all that Christ has called us to do. Only willing and able to do that which is good. What a privilege to look forward to, to realize that this old man will one day fall off. And that's why death is necessary. That's what, that's what we're doing. We're, we're putting off the old man so that we might every day become new in Christ. And the Lord taught us that. He gave us an example. We're gonna get it. We're gonna get to it, but John mentions it and implies this reality in John 13:31. In verse 2. Turn with me there really quick. Only one chapter over. John chapter 13. Look with me at verse 31. This idea of Christ being glorified. It says, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now. Here it is again. Now is the son of man glorified. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. At first, the Lord always spoke of his hour or his time in future tense. Now at this point in the text, the time has come, and he not only com- and he not only comes, but he comes as the Son of man. This is the lord 's most desired title. We love using this t- title. it reveals his humanity and his service. Then, on the other hand. It points to Daniel's vision. You remember Daniel's vision. This is important because the Lord understands that his humiliation includes suffering to fulfill his role as the son of man according to the scriptures. Listen to Daniel's prophecy if you want to follow along. It's in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. There, Daniel states this I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory. And a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. You see, this is the inference that Jesus is making when he calls himself the son of man. And so the Jews knew what Jesus meant in calling himself the Son of Man. The Lord intentionally, intentionally used this title to be clear as to what he was claiming to be. Christ came to bring mediation as the Son of Man. In 1 Timothy 2 and 5, it says, For there is one God and there is one mediator. Between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Christ, as the Son of Man, is the mediator between man and God. And that is why he is man's only hope for salvation. That is why nothing else works. There is nothing else on the face of the earth, there is no person on the face of the world on, on the face of the earth that will qualify mankind for salvation. It is only the man Christ Jesus. And so we're reminded of this mediation. We're reminded of Christ being the mediator and the only hope Reminded of this in paragraph 9 of our beloved London Baptist Confession. There it states, this office of mediator between God and man is proper only to Christ. Who is the prophet, priest, and king of the church of God and may not, and, and may not be either in whole or in, in part thereof transferred from him to any other. In other words, Christ alone. So for the, purposes, for the purposes of illustration, the Lord used agriculture. Look again at verse 24. Now a text, the Lord, Jesus states, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth, speaking of death, and dies, it, it remains alone, but if it dies... It bears much fruit. This explains his own death. It explains his death, burial, and resurrection. His mediation between God and humanity will open uh, the door of salvation that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation might enter in to the kingdom of God through himself. Christ came to die so that others might live. If, if, if we don't know him today, we ought to put our trust only in Christ. We must die to self because that's our only hope. So if you're here today, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. He is our only hope, Jesus himself says in John fourteen verse six, "I am the way. the truth and the life no one comes to the Father except through me. So believe today we're not asking you to to do anything,'re not asking you to do any works we're not asking you to 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 be in Church, doing everything that's not the means for salvation. Salvation requires belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that he died, was buried, and rose again from the grave. Believe that he died for your sins. And if you believe that, he'll save you. For the scripture teaches, if you confess with your mouth and believe in the Lord Jesus, you shall be saved. You see, so it's dependent upon faith that salvation come. Obedience follows thereafter. Obedience is not a means to faith. Obedience follows faith. And it is in knowing Christ that we obey his word. And it is through Christ and by the power of his spirit that we can say, yes, Lord. And we can obey him daily. So, believe today. It takes us to our next point, point number two, the called out ones. When we, come, when we come to knowing Christ, we're reminded of things that we ought to be doing. Point number two, the called out ones. In verse 25, Jesus gives the prerequisites to the crowd and everyone who falls either in the category of faith Or faithlessness. Let's look again at the text. The Lord Jesus states in verse 25, whoever, whoever loves his life loses it. That's a contradiction to what the world teaches, right? Mankind is trying to do everything that he can do to save his life as if he can take with him the things of this world when he dies. Every funeral I've seen, saw. Every funeral I saw, I've seen nothing but a hearse filled with a dead body. No one is taking away anything, but we will report to the Creator to the one who have made us, and we will one day be judged. And he will either say, come to me, my child. You've been faithful over little. Now I will make you ruler over much. Or he will say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, because I don't. Know you. There's no intimacy between you and me. I don't know you. You are disqualified for the kingdom of God. And I hold you contempt. I hold you guilty. For again, Christ is our only hope. Because he's the only one that could say he's mine, Father. I bled for him and died for her. They're mine. And he can say, welcome into my kingdom. It's the the inference that we saw on the cross when the thief, having not done anything, said, Lord, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And he said, this day you shall be with me in paradise. And all he did was believe. What a great benefit. What a great privilege for all the sin we've done. And here it is. He says, you're mine. You're mine. You're my child. There's nothing that you can do to disqualify yourself from entering the kingdom of God. I've done everything. Come, my child. Rest. Rest in the kingdom of God. And so here it is, eternal life is on the line. Eternal life is on the line. Whoever loves his life will lose it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternity. In other words, those that reject God loses everything. If, if we reject Christ, we forfeit every good and every benefit that we can have throughout all eternity, all because we did not believe. God in his love and in his kindness opened up the corridors of time and made a way and applied his grace. And all we have to do is receive it. It's a gift, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but shall have eternal life. You see that? The benefit comes by way of belief, not works. And so we see it in the text, whoever loves his life loses it. Any attempt to try to get into the kingdom of God through any other way except Christ loses. Anyone that is self-absorbed cannot have eternal life. If a person is more interested in life on earth, that person is unfit for the kingdom of God. You see, God, would he's not going to share his glory with anyone. Not your family, your mother, your daughter, your child. He won't share his glory with anyone. You see, this is the picture. This is what it means to die. If a person is more interested in life on earth, that person is unfit for the kingdom of God. You remember the Lord said it. He said, you can't be one that looks back. Keep your eyes on me. Right? We can't look back. And so we're reminded, those who believe cannot, those who do not put God first, they cannot receive eternal life because they are too attached to the world. Those who come to Christ must die to self. Self Self-centeredness and self-centered approaches will only lead to ruining one's soul and life. Now, on the other hand, we are the called-out ones. We're the called-out ones. Look again at your Bibles. Jesus says, whoever hates his life, that's why we thirst for leaving here because we know it's better with Christ. And so our desires, our emotions, our wants is wanting to be with Christ. So he says, whoever hates his life in the world, he uses a metaphor here, right? In that our love ought to be for God. Whoever hates his life in the world will keep it for eternal life. Hate it and keep it. Hate it. And keep it. It's only when we are in union with Christ. That we experience eternal life. Remember what Christ said. When his work was done. He says father remember me. As it was when I was with you. In glory. Restore to me the glory that is due me. Right. So. We're reminded here. That our service to Christ. Authenticates. Our faith, belief, trust, and dependence upon Christ as our mediator between God and man. And it is only in him that we obtain salvation to eternal life. He states the same idea in a different way in Matthew 10 verse 39. When he says, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, the world is opposite. The world would tell us that we are to keep chasing after the things of the world. And those things will only leave us empty. It will leave us unfulfilled, unsatisfied, And constantly wanting more. The only one who can fill us is Christ. Again, the Lord states in Luke 17, 33, he states it slightly different. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. So, how will you lose your lives this year for the sake of Christ? What is it in your life that you're giving too much attention to? More than the attention of God. What is disturbing your communion With God, your fellowship, your prayer, your devotion, your reading scripture. What is it that is causing you to take your eyes off of Christ? That's the question we must all ask ourselves. And it's not a one-time thing. We must do this on a regular basis because we're being pulled in various directions. And we must keep our eyes upon Christ. We have to map out our path so as to walk in step with Christ so that we do not waste time disqualifying ourselves. That leads me to, lead us to our final point. The truly committed. According to the Lord, There is a right way of service and discipleship. He defines what a good church looks like, a good churchman looks like. Look at the text again in verse 26. He defines what followers of Christ must do. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servants be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. In the text, the Lord explained and revealed what happens in the life of the truly committed disciple. And there's three things that he mentions there. One, they must serve him. That is not up for debate. They must serve him. Number two, they must follow him. He says, we're going to be his disciples. We must follow him. We must take up our cross and follow him. And then the third thing that's going to happen that we can look forward to is that one day the father will honor all of those who belong to the son. He will honor them. So not only does the Son comes and dies and bleed and is buried and rises up again on the third day, also that those who are in sin might come into a right relationship of with God through faith, through the finished works of Christ. He did all of that, and then the Father would join in, and he would give honor to those who serve the Son. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So true commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ is grounded in the knowledge of his saving power and divine nature, and it expresses it in one's adoration and obedience to Jesus Christ. You see, fate don't just stand still. Fate moves, it's, it's active. It, 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 it is instructed. Right? It responds, and is all from a foundation of love. Did you notice how Jesus defined his disciples who serves and follow him? He called them his servants. His servants. These are his devoted followers. They are those that are fully on board with the work of Christ. In other words, they're not easily disturbed or knocked off, but they are firmly fixed in Christ, and they're like palm trees. Trials may come, difficulty may come, and they might bend with trouble, but they're coming back with their eyes on Christ. Yes, because they're firm and they're fixed because of what Christ has done for them. So we don't want success. We don't want to be successful in this life. We learned that our men's group, that Moses was successful. In other words, he had all of these feats, all of these things that he had, he had done. But that was a time at the end of his career when Moses was on his way to take the people to the promised land. And you remember what happened. Moses, up to this time, was being obedient. He was following God. But this time, he was moved by the people, and he got caught up in success. And according to the people, he was successful because Moses struck the rock when God told him to speak to the rock. And God, in his kindness, still honored it. The water came gushing out to to allow millions to drink in a desert. And not only did the people drink, but the cattle did too. All of the animals drank to their field. And because of that disobedience, Moses could not go into the promised land. But God, again, in his grace and his kindness, allowed him to look and to see. And here it is, the people of God, the people of God, though they disobeyed him and was traveling in the wilderness for 40 years because of disobedience, God in his love was kind to them. And he kept blessing them, kept watching over them. And one day they would enter the promised land. The problem back then is that the people would fail again. It will begin worshiping idols again, worshiping other gods, putting themselves first, being self-absorbed. But there is one that will come, a king who will fix all of that. And now it would not be dependent upon the people, but it will be dependent upon one who would say, it is finished the Christ who would come and provide a righteousness for the people that cannot provide a righteousness for themselves and he would be the mediator. He would be the great high priest who will offer a sacrifice that is perfect. The one who is both priest and king. And here it is. The Lord is wanting devotion. So What does this mean as you prepare for the upcoming week? How can we prepare to be faithful? For what we really want is not success, but we want faithfulness. That's what God wants. He wants faithfulness. Let's, in other words, let's say what Scripture says, right? In that we ought to have an unwavering desire to honor Christ, self-sacrifice is the willingness to leave one's possessions or to give them to others to deny oneself to the point of death or to give oneself in service of God or other people. Hebrews 10.34 says, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted and the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. It says, by faith, in in, in Hebrews 11, when he was grown up, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth then the treasures of Egypt for he was looking to the reward by faith he left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king for he endured as seeing him who is invisible self sacrifice is a condition for discipleship it's a condition for discipleship luke 14:33 Jesus says, so therefore, if any of you who does not resu- renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Cannot be my disciple. The Lord is wanting everything. This means loving Jesus Christ above all. Above all. That's a true disciple. Those willing to leave everything to follow Christ. Luke 5:27. He says, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector. Remember the tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. What happened? He said to him, follow me. And leaving what? Everything. Right? Everything. He rose and did what? Followed him. See? That's the practice. Then Paul, the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 and 8. Indeed, he he referenced it, right? Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ the more. So I'm going to close with this. What will you refuse to bring glory to Christ? What will you take a stand for? How will you honor Christ, beloved of God? Let us think on these things as we ponder what we want to accomplish for this year. How can we truly be his disciples?